podcast is number 155, entitled Miss Odell. And I begin with that uh, as a takeoff to what I really want to talk about, which is uh, the Episcopal Church. And um, the problem of talking about anything in real terms is you simply can't do it because you're so afraid of it being picked up by uh, folk who have an attachment to whatever or whomsoever you're speaking about, that you're simply afraid to ever do it. And so people don't actually say what they think uh, now more than ever, but it's always been true in talking about something that you um, know about. You don't talk about it in real or specific terms out of fear of getting someone mad at you about whom you were speaking. And so no one ever does. Uh, Erwin S. Cobb's um, backstory autobiography, he published a uh, very interesting and long publishable autobiography near the time of his death. I think he died in 1944. But um, he'd also written a true autobiography. And his autobiography was so um, uh, uh, true and real about his real feelings and his real experiences and his real um, opinions about any number of things that I'm told that it was destroyed by a member of his family, uh, simply destroyed. So we really don't know what Erwin S. Cobb thought about his life, except a little bit from his uh, kind of will, which shocked a lot of people. My point is that in the song Miss Odell by uh, George Harrison, which is um, a, uh, an, uh, an out track, uh, a bonus track uh, for the more recent um, commemorative edition of Living in the Material World, he was actually using as the occasion of his very funny song, which you've heard about his understanding and relationship to sort of world charitable causes of that era, he writes a very funny um, um, 
scenario in relationship to the then receptionist at Abbey Records in London, whose name was Miss Odell. No wonder it was held back for a long time. It has really nothing to do with Miss Odell. She is simply the uh, takeoff point for something very interesting and funny that he's actually saying. Uh, but he, obviously, someone didn't want to do it out of deference to an individual. Now, when it comes to what I uh, want to say, which I hope is actually constructive concerning, for example, the um, denomination within Christianity with which I've spent a great deal of my life, not just my adult life, even going back to a tiny child where I kind of shared um, another um, Christian church with the Episcopal Church as it came out in my upbringing. Nevertheless, it goes back very far. <clears throat> and yet one is so reluctant ever to speak about anything out of fear of offense. And so I'm in a Miss Odell situation, but I really have wanted to say a couple things about the Episcopal Church, which are simply statements of facts on the ground. I uh, honestly believe um, that this is interesting, and it's more a, uh, a reflection on history rather than any kind of a, uh, a, a um, negation of present ideas or trends. But I was struck, so struck, by um, some dialogue in a movie, and then I read the book upon which the movie was based, and I was so struck in this uh, 1958, I believe, a novel about how the Episcopal Church played its part, that it made me remember some things that I'd like to talk about. But it's sort of a Miss Odell situation. And so I'm going to use this brief podcast as an exercise in kind of mediated uh, um, uh, information as best I can. I hope you'll find it interesting because it really has to do with the uh, history of Christianity in our country and uh, certain um, cultural moments that have actually um, some implications and interesting consequences. And I hope I can do this in a way that is funny, because it is a little funny, and yet at the same time wistful and even possibly poignant, concluding with a passage in Cousins from his novel The Last Adam, which was made into a movie but omitted this section of it, by John Ford. Uh, his 1933 novel, The Last Adam, includes a passage which I've referred to long before, which completely finally explained the kind of ministry I was having after many years in the Episcopal Church. It explained what had happened. And this is what I want to talk about. It's kind of an explanation of a cultural and religious and ultimately spiritual phenomenon. Well, what occasioned the podcast was the remarkable fact that in the um, what is now heavily... Um, categorized movie, A Summer Place, with Sandra Dee, Troy Donahue, Richard Egan, Dorothy McGuire, and Constance Ford, and um, Arthur Kennedy, that was um, released in 1960, um, the Episcopal Church comes into it. And I think I mentioned it last time, and I suddenly said, oh my gosh, that's an amazing giveaway. Now, in the actual book, which I read, uh, the, it, although the Episcopal Church comes into it very clearly, the uh, particular event in the movie which I was talking about is actually a Catholic church, St. Mark's Catholic Church, not um, an Episcopal Church. But the reason they brought it in as the Episcopal Church is because the Episcopal Church is sort of the natural place for this particular event in the lives of these young people. Now, what is so wonderful about that um, 
uh, movie, but more importantly, the book by Sloan Wilson entitled A Summer Place. It's not about the Episcopal Church. It's really about Kramer. And as I've said, it's about the Kramer versus the contraption. And believe it or not, the contraption wins. And it's a very uplifting book in its way. And you don't need to have any kind of attitude about the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, or today to appreciate the highly moving scenario, which concludes with the contraption winning over Kramer. However, however, quoting Cartman, there is an element uh, in the way that the Episcopal Church is invoked that is absolutely classic, because when you read it, there is absolutely no continuity whatsoever with the understanding of the Episcopal Church, which is only a matter of a couple lines here and there scattered throughout a summer place, and the attitudes which James Gould Cousins was a little more interested in than Sloan Wilson and actually is able to uh, understand with greater focus in um, almost all of his books, but certainly half of his books, and um, any number of other places that I've talked about in terms of the movies, right down to The Parent Trap with Leo G. Carroll. The um, way that it comes out is that the during two situations where... Um, um, a uh, minister is required, the minister is called for. And the word minister occurs constantly rather than priest. Now, that may sound like a nominal or unimportant or token factor, but actually it's very important because the um, uh, in the Episcopal Church, as it was in 90% of its evocations, from Maine to Santa Fe, from um, Utah to Jacksonville, the Episcopal Church was a Protestant denomination. No one questioned it except, as I said, about 10% who were in a specific ghetto known as traditional Anglo-Catholicism. And there was a significant ghetto, and that, in fact, was where much of the actual religion in the church lay. This is no attack on Anglo-Catholicism. Quite to the contrary, it's an affirmation of the small percentage of Anglo-Catholic clergy and some supportive laity and some religious who... Uh, carried uh, some of the religious life of the church during that era, which is the sort of 1920s, 30s, 40s, 50s, and 60s. And um, But the overwhelming majority of the parishes, 80% of the parishes, maybe 84% of the parishes, were uh, part of a Protestant denomination called uh, 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 the Protestant Episcopal Church in the USA, P.E. And it was, it was normal in those days to refer to a church as St. Mark's P.E. Church, like we might say A.M.E. today or RE, you know, or PCUSA, or PCA. Uh, it was uh, the common attribution in perhaps half of the 80% that were PE. The common noun was St. Mark's PE Church of New Canaan, or whatever it was. And um, before you get all off on, if you're attached to this uh, idea, I'm describing the way it actually was, the way it's mirrored in literature, uh, those who thought about it, right down to Mary McCarthy in the group. It comes into the group, right down to, and she was not a, uh, an Episcopalian, um, right down to sort of popular culture from Night of the Iguana with, uh, with um, uh, um, wonderful uh, Richard Burton, or uh, most powerfully in The Sandpiper. If you want to see a movie that absolutely characterizes the Episcopal Church as it was, and in this case, Northern California, uh, in the time of the early to mid-60s, or even late 60s, uh, but right through 20s, 30s, 40s, see the Sandpiper and the headmaster of the school. And you'll see a very sincere, uh, but absolutely um, 
rock of the rock uh, Episcopalian view of the way it actually was. So when you read the word Mister constantly being the church, the, 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 the clergyman is Mister, and always they're calling for the minister. Um, what is it, Mandy? Mandy, is there a minister handy? You know, thank you, Stuart. Um, a minister. Um, that is, in fact, the way it really was. Now, I can say that. I can witness to that. Can I get a witness while you're, you're listening to one? Because I was there. I, I was there. I saw it. There was always that little handful of, uh, of Anglo-Catholics who often absented themselves from diocesan and other larger meetings. But it was, in fact, a Protestant denomination uh, in its overall self-understanding, uh, reaching, for the most part, a demographic that today would be called upper middle class, if you were to use it. Today, you would say that it was a Protestant denomination that had historically a demographic among the uh, upper uh, middle class or upper middle tier of American sort of life at that period of time. And that kept going. It's completely gone. I mean, there are a few parishes in the South where it uh, is retained for traditional reasons a little bit, but um, those are very much the exception, very much the exception. There are some, as I said, in the South, uh, but that has completely changed. And if you asked 95% of the Episcopalians who actually go to church today, and you said that the rector would normally have been referred to as Mr. Harris or Mr. whatever it was years ago in the foreseeable past um, in Hinsicht, uh, and that the service every Sunday morning would have been morning prayer at least two out of four Sundays. And really, prior to about 1962, oh, only once a month was the communion service, as it's now called the Eucharist, H-E, if you actually told people that the principal service in their parish was until the early 60s, almost definitely morning prayer at 11 o'clock, they would look at you and they wouldn't believe you. But it um, was the case, and it's just so interesting. Uh, I can give you chapter and verse on that. I'm always reluctant. It sounds negative, and it, it really isn't negative. It is a mark of loss. Now, what did we lose and what did we gain by jettisoning that? And I'm going to just reflect a little bit on what, was, what has been lost and then a little bit on what we could might say has been gained and then what really was the cause of this change? Because when you see an institution changing to the degree that a church such as the Episcopal Church has changed, say since 1965, prior to 1968, if, if you could see the degree to which it's changed in 95% of its incarnations, with some exceptions in the South, and even there the liturgical model won't have changed um, in every parish, with almost no exceptions, you would be, um, it's a fascinating, you know, où sont les neiges d'automne? Uh, how did it happen? What caused something to change so much to the degree that it is literally unrecognizable? What, um, what has been um, lost was first a um, simple, um, low church or broad church, Protestant um, ethos in which the sermon was the main thing. The rector was usually a nice fellow. Um, not a great preacher, but not a bad preacher. And you went to church really to sing the Venite and the Jubilate and sing old hymns, such as we'll hear at the end of the podcast, and um, be cheered a little bit. And occasionally you got a good minister. And it was never called a priest, ever, ever, ever. I cannot emphasize that 
strongly enough. And people who, you know, today, it's incomprehensible to them because the whole purpose they've joined the church is to get away from, you know, hail fellow, well met, horizontal, uh, you know, the Methodist church downtown, or they've joined it to get away from some terrible uh, uh, sense of law that they have received at the hands of their evangelical slash Baptist, whatever it was, background. So they come to the Episcopal Church first to uh, get something like verticality, which, although I may consider it precious because it's out of context, nevertheless, it's some sense of verticality, and that's why they want the priest to be a priest and not anything like the parson down at, uh, you know, First United Methodist Church, wherever they might have come. And they certainly want it to be um, not. Uh, in any sense uh, doctrinally heavy because people associate that with law and Phariseeism and especially exclusion and rejection. But that's in fact not what it was like. What has been lost is the ethos of a um, dignified uh, Protestant church with history as opposed to believing that sort of Christianity had been made up. I'll tell you a classic example. There's a photograph in uh, that was taken, I think, a daguerreotype uh, taken around 1852 of Old Christ Church in Philadelphia. Now, if there's any mother church of the Episcopal Church in the USA beyond Trinity Church Wall Street, I think anyone would agree, uh, or Old North Church in uh, in Boston, it would be definitely uh, Old uh, Christ Church uh, uh, in downtown Philadelphia, which is where the Constitutional Convention would have its church services, and there's a very intimate connection historically. Uh, people wouldn't want to admit it now, but historically, organically, uh, and empirically on the ground, there was an intimate connection between old, what is now called Old Christ Church in Philadelphia and uh, the beginnings of this country. And in this photograph of 1852, it's very, very interesting and revealing. I commend it to you. I, you can probably find it on Google Images, but, it's, but it shows the minister or the rector it's a real photograph from 1852 in the church before it was re renewed or uh, sort of slightly made more high church after the Civil War. And in this photograph, uh, you see exactly what you would see in a Presbyterian church, but with two very interesting exceptions. What you see is you see first uh, a, a, a um, um, the minister, the rector, standing at the north end of a communion table, which has a fair linen on it, uh, in the front of the church. And the minister, uh, what distinguishes him from a, a, a Presbyterian is that he's wearing a surplice as well as a cassock, and he's wearing not a stole, because you would never wear a stole in those days, ever, ever, ever. Uh, even John Keeble did not wear a stole, ever. But in any event, he's wearing a, a tippet or a scarf, and he's presiding at the north end of the table so as not to appear Catholic. But the um, communion vessels on the table are beautiful. They're the highest quality of sort of Paul Revere silver, these lovely great communion tankards and deep chalices typical of the period, and they are extraordinarily good taste, the highest quality of sort of Revere-type silver. Behind, however, the altar is a central pulpit, a Georgian beautiful pulpit, which still exists and is still in that church, but it's been moved to um, to the side um, where the minister still preaches, but it's been cut down, as they say. It's lost one of its stages, and it's certainly not in the center. But here you have a church which is a pulpit-based, the pulpit's in the middle, over the altar, and yet there is a, an altar table, which is the proper word, even at the time, or communion table, which was more in keeping. And the minister is not dressed as a Catholic priest, but he's dressed very beautifully. He looks very dear, very uh, like God, you know, the usual thing. And he's on the north end, so as not to have his the communion hidden from the people. And the only thing that differentiates this from a Presbyterian church is, first, the extreme good taste of the pulpit. It is absolutely perfect. 
Georgian pulpit. The extreme good taste and quality of the silver and the uh, tankards and the uh, chalices and the, uh, of the fact that the minister is wearing a surplice and is extremely beautifully attired, plus the fact that there are stained glass windows. Now, the stained glass windows are not representational. There may be one at the east end, and now they're clear glass if you've been there recently. But in 1852, they were st dark stained glass windows, but with all fleur-de-lis and uh, little lozenges that were... Um, uh, not representational of anything. That would have come later in the Anglo-Catholic or High Church revival. But um, they are uh, non-representational, but they are very beautiful. So beauty, quality, taste, and a Protestant denomination. And there you have it. I mean, I, I don't need to, to prove it to you or demonstrate it to you. The 1852 photograph of the rector presiding at communion at Christchurch, Philadelphia, says it all. Now, so what have we lost? We've lost the sense that here was a, 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 a Protestant uh, a denomination with a particular... Um, uh, with a particular demographic, which was permeable. I mean, it, it came and went. It, it was permeable. And uh, we've lost that sense of the minister not being a priest uh, and not being over you, but, but at the same time being in a, you know, in a somewhat special category. So a lot of things were preserved. You have communion, for crying out loud. The picture shows the uh, minister or the priest... Um, preparing to celebrate communion, but there's no frontal, no, no communion, only the fair linen, uh, no, uh, nothing that we would have today, and the pulpit is over him. And I say all that because we've lost that. Now, um, what did we gain in losing it? Well, I would say we gained uh, two things. We gained, and then I'll finish with Cousins uh, in The Last Adam. We gained... Um, perhaps the possibility of a little more uh, earnestness in religion. The characteristic fault of Episcopalianism with its de relative demographic, uh, which I think we know at that period, but it's gone. It just doesn't exist anymore. What we've lost, uh, what we gained was a, uh, a, a, a church that had the potential for being a little more religious. The great thing that was not good about growing up and being around that church is you usually went to an Episcopal church in the 50s and 60s and you seldom encountered real religion. You tended to feel it was a rote thing. Everybody sort of knew the service by rote, the morning prayer service, and there wasn't really, although there are many individual exceptions in people, you generally, it was boring and it was rote and you had the feeling that most of the people there were not really, uh, there, there wasn't much of a verticality to it. It just didn't have that much of a direct encounter with God. It just wasn't that serious religiously, and I can attest to that. And many lifelong Episcopalians would say the same. That growing up, it just didn't seem to be very serious or urgent or energetic when it came to the horizontal question of, you know, um, stand before your God. There was very little of that. There were major exceptions, like you know, Theodore Parker Ferris at Trinity Copley Square in Boston, and uh, I'm told that Roscoe Faust at the Ascension in the 40s and 50s in New York City had real religion, and Lewis Weatherby Pitt from Grace Church down there was a low churchman. He, he sat on the dais at the Billy Graham Crusade in Madison Square Garden. It had a huge impact uh, in uh, New York society and New York life at that period of time. There were many exceptions, and you probably knew one at the time, but for the most part, the Episcopal priests were sort of running a kind of benign charitable institution, uh, and it was very hard to derive great spiritual sustenance if you were going through a crack-up, and that's why generally people, serious religious people, when they had problems, tended to drop out and go a different way. Now, um, that's what we've gained, is the potential or the permeability for some kind of spiritual experience. What has happened is that 
a certain kind of social advocacy has become kind of uh, partisan, and in a way, in a way, it's not really the my church will be a house of prayer for all people. In many, many places, the church has become kind of a an advocacy center for a certain group or a certain self understanding, and so uh, it, it's lost its representational quality that it was, I mean, it says it is, but in actual fact, it, it comes across less and less as a church for all sorts of conditions of men and women, and more a place for people who have very, very highly uh, formed uh, ideas about this, that, or the other thing. So you tend to be self-selecting. It just is. It's a rather self-selecting phenomenon, and sort of people who um, aren't exactly in the cookie cutter of a certain way of approaching whatever is the current uh, issue of the day, and it varies every week or every year, um, find often they just feel a little bit uh, pressed or a little pressured to go along a certain kind of way. And this really is a factor. It's a factor for the clergy. There are very, very few clergy today who are out and out admitted, quote, conservatives, end of quote, really, not because the church has said they can't be there, although in some places it has, but you do feel very much like you're odd if you don't take the party line um, on whatever. As I say, it varies all the time, and it was different with me growing up. The issues were different than they are today. But there were always issues, but now it's become a little bit, you know, you just, you just, is it a house of prayer for all people, for all persons? Um, That, you know, yes, unless you happen to be you know, a member of the Tea Party or, you know, and I'm not saying I am because I'm not, but let's imagine that I were a libertarian, uh, you know, such and such, feeling very strongly about this, that, or the other thing in government. Well, you know, you really, would you really feel, because a lot of the sermons you get today actually are advocacy sermons. They're not really about religion. They're the, the newsletters you receive, the, the bishop's letters you receive, the dean's letters you receive. There's a tremendous sense that the purpose of the church is to be an advocate. I understand that. In some cases in history, I would totally affirm that. But you are increasingly getting a kind of self-selection in the uh, persons who feel really totally on board with whatever the governing uh, principles and concerns and agendas of a given parish church are. So that's limited the appeal of the Episcopal Church and actual fact, perhaps not in self-understanding, but an actual fact. Now, how did this all happen? Here's where I conclude. How did this change occur? It lost its demography. It lost its self-understanding. It's lost its liturgical spirit or sense of liturgy. And it lost it all in favor of some advantages, yes, but nevertheless, something was lost. Now, in the concluding section of The Last Adam, the 1933 novel by James Gould Cousins, Young Virginia Banning is dying. She's a teenager, and she's about to go to college. She's in boarding school or whatever it is, and she's a typical daughter of uh, the senior warden of this small Connecticut Episcopal Church who are the sort of local family. And uh, she's dying, and she's lost her religion. And her father's the senior warden, and her mother is very active in the altar guild. And this is what... But it is very clear that Virginia Banning will never embrace the faith of her fathers, the church of her mother and father actively again, notwithstanding whatever personal things happened to her. And uh, this uh, was uh, what I, and I'm going to read this, and this is the end. Um, um, he, he, Mr. Banning is reflecting in his garden. He said, um, now my mother's religious relationship was to God, he writes. This is the father of Virginia the senior warden of the church. My mother's religious relationship was to God, not to the rector. But the church had become, in its sense of being Episcopal parishes, much more meaningful 
undoubtedly to Mrs. Banning, to Lucille, than religion did. She thought of the church. This is the mother of Virginia, the wife of the man who is speaking. I hope you've got that. The mother of the is Lucille, and the daughter is Virginia, and the man is Mr. Banning. She, the wife, thought of the church with a comfortable sense of its formal beauty and dignity. In this particular fellowship, in Christ, all was relatively easy. The people everywhere would be approximately her own kind. Their attitudes and interests would be comprehensible to her and in keeping with an ecclesiastical tradition of education and breeding. Now, now we get to the real meaning of it. That was all very well, Mr. Banning could see, but it was not static anymore. It would not be the end. Virginia, his daughter, in the next generation of banning women, would undoubtedly have no religion nor any interest in a surviving tradition. At Virginia's age, he could feel intuitively his parents' sober, perhaps smug, acceptance of the church. What Virginia felt would be his, her father's, unspoken indifference, and little better, her mother's preoccupation with the more formal aspects of the church. Presumably, his uh, his parents would have taken disciplinary measures if he had failed in a sober, godly, and righteous attitude. Lucille, the mother, by doing nothing, acknowledged her failure. If Virginia went to church, it was distinctly as a favor to her mother and tacitly recognized as that. As far as Virginia herself was concerned, there was no sense in going. For her to go alone, that was, without any reason, would be unthinkable. Church-going was simply a form fortunately growing milder as Virginia got older, of that adult tyranny to which she submitted because she must. Lucille, the mother, really would not dare speak to her daughter about God or the teachings of Jesus. It would be safer not to bring up the issue of Virginia's real thoughts and sentiments. And Mr. Banning says, there was nothing to be done about it now. Now, it's very tragic because something terrible happens to Virginia. And what that particular paragraph enabled me to say when I was the rector of a parish, which I'd actually had a definite childhood relationship. I had an organic childhood relationship to a parish, <coughs> which I then many, many years later uh, became um, uh, the servant of, uh, the, the ordained minister at that parish. And I had remembered it. And uh, Virginia's uh, impressions... Virginia Banning's impressions of the church in uh, her town in Connecticut were very similar to what I experienced in that parish growing up. I had the sense that everyone was going for some kind of constraint, that there was little real religion. I mean, there ought to have been, and we would like it had there been, but there just wasn't. And it seemed all about kind of a formal going through of the thing that lacked, with I'm sure exceptions that I did not see as a child, any real kind of spiritual muscle for those who were in some kind of distress. And so I saw it immediately. I sort of wrote it off, even, even at age 12. I sort of saw, well, golly, if this is religion, I mean, who would really... Who would really want to do this just to go through the motions? Uh, even I saw that at 12 in the, in the, in the you know, mid early 1960s, I saw it. Uh, and then so interesting to come many, many years later and discover that there were very, very few people left of that original parish that I had known as a child. And those who were, uh, were sort of in the hills as shut-ins, and uh, their children grandchildren had no connection whatsoever with the parish. And I kept doing funerals. I've said this in a podcast before, in which the only Episcopalian was the dead one. And these were grown children who'd have sometimes grown up even with trust funds or with privilege, as it's called today, or, quote, you know, independent schools. And yet their feeling for the church was exactly zero. 
sometimes there was animus and distrust some, or hatred even. Usually there was indifference and in some cases, possibly in a daughter's, there was a kind of sentimental attachment which might come out in a willingness to have the service. But inevitably the, the, uh, the, uh, uh, the, the uh, words that were spoken at the funeral in the church were from a friend who was a Buddhist or a friend who never even once mentioned remotely that which was central to the uh, seemingly to the material existence of this formal institution. So <coughs> Cousins came to me because he opened my eyes. He opened my eyes to what I was dealing with. And uh, that was all lost. And so when you read Sloan Wilson's novel, A Summer Place, and you see that, part of you wants to say, well, it should have been lost. There was no real religion to it, or at least with only exceptions. For the, for the needy, needy young person, there wasn't enough religion. There was, in fact, quite a bit. All you need to do is Lloyd Douglas's novels. But his novels are, Dean Harcourt is a radical exception of the time. That, that was, in fact, the case. And people who lived back then can verify this. There aren't many left. Um, so so we lost uh, something that was probably worth losing, but what did we gain? We gained uh, extremely eclectic self-understanding based upon a kind of liturgical sense that isn't really intrinsically coherent to baseline American Episcopalianism. It's really a kind of artificiality, a kind of forcedness of something that isn't really absolutely true to the heritage of of, of say uh, St. Luke's Church in Smithfield Parish at Jamestown, you know, 1632. It, it there's a different ethos. And secondly, it's so eclectic because there's been such a an ideological sharpening that uh, it, 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 is it the 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 uh, a house of prayer for all people. That's what Jesus said the church should be. Uh, and is it really the house of prayer for all people? Um, I'm glad it's the house of prayer for all sorts of people for whom earlier, uh, you know, who are looking for something important. I'm glad of that. I don't deny that. I'm pleased about that. Every, anyone would have to be. But is it the house of prayer for all people? Well, you have to watch that you don't sharpen your edges such that, that, uh, that you, you become, by definition, a self-selecting uh, environment. That's my thought. And now I give you back uh, a very uh, uh, precious uh, survival. Um, this particular recording of this great hymn is not quite hearty enough to the way it was really intended by Ray Vaughan Williams. Um, but nevertheless, it is, in fact, so symbolic of the way um, the Episcopal Church used to really think of itself and was at its best. And so I leave you with a little preview of what was and which occasionally might, in fact, still be, especially at funerals in which the only Episcopalian is deceased. Thank you very much. Thank you.